Welcome to this episode of uh, Discourse Today. I'm Kay Walsh. I'm the Managing Director of Nova Economics, a small consultancy, uh, economic and strategy consultancy based in Stellenbosch. And today I'll be joined by Professor Noel Berger from the University of Stellenbosch to unpack some of the socioeconomic impacts of the COVID pandemic and um, specifically to discuss, you know, the South African response and some of the contexts um, specific issues that we face. Um, Renal, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thanks. Um, I'm Renal Berger. I'm a professor at um, Stellenbosch University, part of the Research on Socioeconomic um, Policy uh, Group at the Department of Economics at Stellenbosch University. And within that group, my role is specifically around health and health policy. So I'm very happy to discuss these details and more with you today. Great. Yes, so I have a slightly different background. I'd say most of my work has been in energy economics, but in a former life, I was um, a macroeconomist um, actually during the last financial crisis. So I still have quite a keen interest in yeah, a macroeconomic impact of major exogenous shocks. So I thought we might start by discussing just the current status of the COVID epidemic in South Africa and where we're at as of the 1st of May. I believe from the health minister's as William Keyes' update yesterday that we've now reached about 5,600 cases in total. Mentioned about 3,000 of these are still active. No, and I think that that is great because that does show that there's been some value-add and some um, yield for all the sacrifices South Africans have made. Based on the recent trajectory, uh, we've seen about 5% growth in, in cases. And initially, before we went into lockdown, we were on a trajectory similar to the UK, where we saw a 33% increase in daily cases, which would have, at this point, meant that we would be sitting on 60,000 instead of 5,600, which is a big difference. Um, Yeah, and I mean, I think that that does kind of put it into perspective because otherwise one thinks, why have we shut down the economy, kept 55 million people at home, all because of an epidemic that's resulted in 100 deaths so far and, you know, a total of 5,000 cases. Um, But I think one, yeah, we have to bear in mind that this is exactly the result of the drastic measures that have been taken. Um, it's the old problem of the unseen counterfactual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I believe globally cases are heading towards 3 million and it has been in a relatively short space of time. I think, yeah, I think it, it looks like um, this very early and very stringent lockdown has been the right decision. I think had we not taken it, we would have had rather severe public health shock and we're seeing this scenario play out in much more um, advantaged countries than in, you know, South African context, where even much better equipped public health systems are battling to cope with the exponential increase in cases. But of course, it has come with some rather severe economic consequences. And social. Yeah, and social. So do you think, I mean, what was the original purpose of the lockdown? Do you think that government has really achieved what they, they set out to do? And, uh, you know, was the purpose to try and reduce the number of cases to zero or what were they hoping when yeah when they closed the economy on the 26th 
of March. The narrative has always been around flattening the curve, and that has certainly happened. The reduction of the daily rate from 33% to 5% is exactly that, right? And I think we do face challenges, and there are a lot of uncertainty about how this disease will affect us. You know, a country where there is a high chronic disease burden, a high HIV burden, many of which are not necessarily immune uh, suppressed. And then additionally, I think one is just worried in general about um, hunger and hardship and how that will play out, you know, because that also affects the immune response. And our health system is not the health system of Singapore or South Korea. So we need a time to get ourselves geared up for this. And I think we have bought time. <laughs> yeah. um, I think we now need to see how things play out. You know, we are, have eased, we've started to ease, the, ease these um, lockdown measures. And I think, in a way, the proof is in the pudding. We have flattened the curve, but the question is in terms of system readiness. Have we done enough or has the time been enough? You know, there's some systematic concerns about our health system and the strength of health systems in developing countries to do the testing and tracing and the decentralized patient management that is required to contain this disease uh, once a lockdown is lifted. And I think the question is how our health system will fare, how they will do with that. So I had read an article um, by Alex van der who noted that we only actually have 2,000 critical care beds in public sector in South Africa. That was his estimate. And 5,000 in private, fortunately. But, you know, even including the private sector beds, we've got about 12 per 100,000 population versus Germany, who has about 30. So that's part of the reason why Germany has been able to cope so well, despite having a relatively high number of cases is they do have a well-equipped, you know, health system. And in fact, they have about 4.5 doctors per thousand people and we have less than one. So I think, you know, it, it seems that we've taken an overly drastic approach or draconian approach, but we also have to remember our context, I guess, you know, is yeah. very different. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really encouraging to see the private and the public sector work together like they have. I think one of the big surprises of the coronavirus for me as a researcher and as a health researcher is to see how it has focused energy on combating the virus and breached traditional divides between public and private and within health research also far more sharing than is, you know, customary. Um, that's so a very positive benefit and I hope the sort of the trust that's been built um, you know lasts you. that it's that relationships are galvanized during this this crisis because it has you know traditionally been an issue but distrust between different um, well private and public sector entities in a number of different sectors including health that fragmentation has been a challenge in specific countries, right? I mean, in the U.S. particularly, the federal fragmentation and the fact that there's not cooperation. Because if you're faced with a crisis and a pandemic, it's very, very important to have cooperation, to be able to manage things from the top. And it just seems that, um, you know, that will be one of our key challenges for South Africa, being able to together and work together. Yeah, it has been a very positive experience so far. The one area where perhaps we haven't made as much progress during the lockdown, which brought us time to prepare, is in the area of testing. So uh, William Key's health minister had previously announced that by the end of April, they wanted to reach 30,000, 36,000, I think, tests per day. 
And I believe we're currently sitting on around 11, 10 or 11. Do you know what some of the challenges have been? And is it something they're going to be able to rectify? As far as I know, they started a week late. So that might be a big part of um, the issue. I'm not in the inside circle to know sort of exactly what operational issues they've faced. But I mean, I have also seen that in the press, they've now adjusted the target and increasingly they're speaking about 10,000. And it was encouraging for me to see that um, recently Abdul Karim talked about that they've now screened about 10%. Because the screening is almost as important as the testing. You know, the fact that they've they've covered in terms of screening about 10% of South Africans, that is that is quite uh, pretty impressive, yes. Mm-hmm. That's quite a workforce that ha- they had to recruit to, to cover mm-hmm. that many people. The other aspect, I suppose, is that the tests take a while. I believe the ideal turnaround is between 24 uh, hours and 48, but it's typically taking between three and five days. So these are not rapid tests. And even the more rapid version that uses the, the gene expert um, equipment used in TB diagnostics that would still need to be sent to the lab. So until there is a a sort of rapid at home test in place and antibody test, which Professor Kareem has spoken about, um, they are trying to obtain, I guess their ability to turn them around quickly is is limited by laboratory capacity. Um, Exactly. And um, that, that, makes it very difficult to interpret the testing and the, the testing volumes and also the, the cases as they emerge on a daily basis. Because sometimes um, bad news is actually good news because a rise in cases is actually due to better lab, the sudden, sudden surge in lab capacity and a bigger push in terms of screening and testing. So, I mean, up to now, I've really been keeping my eye rather on the the growth in the deaths, but now there's been an international debate also about the uncertainties around the corona deaths, because in a lot of countries, including New York, they've found massive differences between all-cause mortality for the current period and comparing it to the same period last year. And um, that has been interpreted as alluding to missed corona cases. In our case in South Africa, we actually have the inverse. We have negative excess mortality. So we have, even including these corona deaths, fewer all-cause deaths and even also fewer natural deaths um, than we had same time last year, which I think is quite intriguing. Yeah, I guess that has a lot to do with keeping everyone safe at home (laughs) without alcohol and off the roads. I think that is the whole social experiment on its own. The fact that the ER doctors have found that there's been such a rapid and deep decline in in ER emergencies and the busyness of the ER uh, rooms over the weekends due to presumably uh, exactly what they attributed to is the kind of dying on alcohol. (laughs) We know (laughs) know alcohol deaths are a big segment of the non-natural deaths, but I think we now see it uh, very clearly. Yeah, that will be really interesting for future research. The one one death statistics that I've been following that have been quite interesting are the ones that the John Hopkins, uh, one John Hopkins research unit puts together in The Economist, and they show how how many days it's taken for deaths to double since the 50th 
was recorded. As you say, none of these statistics are entirely reliable of sampling errors, testing differences, and reporting differences. But what we do see is that the countries that have the highest fatalities, which is at the moment the US, the UK, Spain, and Italy, in the first 20, in the first month post the 50th death, their deaths were doubling every second or third day for the entire month. Whereas in South Africa, it's taken two weeks for the deaths to double from 50 to 100. So basically, we really are at the moment in the very sort of favorable part of the spectrum of countries. We are tracking South Korea. If we could continue to track South Korea, it would be fantastic. But obviously, given our context, our socioeconomic context being almost polar opposite from South Korea, we probably can't afford to keep the economy locked down as long. And we simply don't have, you know, they had the experience with MERS previously. We don't have the same infrastructure that they've been able to launch post-lockdown to reopen the economy and to test and trace. Yeah, so... I guess the question for me then is, yeah, what have some of the economic, you know, what are the trade-offs? What have some of the economic, socioeconomic impacts of the lockdown been? And, you know, why is it not feasible really to continue to extend it? Well, given your past as a macroeconomist, past life, I'll leave some of the macroeconomic details to you. I mean, it's very clear that some of it will take time to manifest. The... Job losses estimates that are on the table are deeply concerning, given that we're already at a historic crisis level when it comes to unemployment. Even before COVID started, um, we were deeply worried about um, unemployment and, of course, specifically youth unemployment. And Mm. the fact that initially numbers around 1 million job losses, and now Treasury has spoken about 2 to 7 million job losses. This is deeply concerning. I think actually the mind boggles and one struggles to think about the second and third round effects of all of this. I think uh, you see every week people are adjusting the estimates of sort of how deeply this will affect the economy. And socially, of course, even on the short term during the lockdown, we've seen media reports of you know, gender-based violence, of course, but it's very difficult to get a good estimate of how widespread that is. Um, One case is one case too many, but then also mental health problems and hunger, widespread hunger. No firm numbers at the moment on the table. HSRC, um, the internet survey of around sort of 5,000 individuals, it's been adjusted and reweighted, but it still has a little bit of an urban bias. And they found about 28% of individuals saying that they went they had to go to bed hungry uh, one night that week. Um, But hunger has been high beforehand and the samples are not directly comparable. But I think adding that to a lot of anecdotal evidence about how many food packets have been delivered and widespread need, I think definitely there's been a hunger impact. We don't know the extent of it. But um, if... Aggregate data, I and mean, we have the problem that a lot of the indicators of what's currently happening on the macro level come out with a bit of a lag or, or sometimes a exactly. And so, you know, the IMF has updated its World Economic Outlook forecasts of uh, GDP for all countries or most major economies. And they have forecast that SA GDP would contract by a staggering 6% this year. And yeah, as I, as I mentioned, um, having been a banking economist during the 2008 
nine financial crisis, which we thought was a one, you know, you know, one in a hundred year event, and GDP contracted in that year by one point five percent, you realize this, the potential severity of this recession. You know, early estimates saying maybe it's six times more severe. And then I've also, as I said. You know, from my energy background, I follow a lot of energy indicators and we've seen some really astonishing numbers out of ESCOM because energy is an input into almost every form of economic activity. It's quite closely correlated with aggregate, you know, GDP. And we've seen a drop off since March of 30%, both quarter on quarter and year on year. So people, the economy is consuming 30% less power which would imply that GDP, based on the historical relationships, may have contracted by as much as 11 12% this quarter. And that would equate to a loss of 157 billion rand. So it's massive in one quarter to have that kind of impact. And it may well be underestimated, you know, because the correlation in uncertain times won't be standard. Yeah, so I think it remains to be seen as more data comes out, more of the leading indicators, but, and also to see how the economy whether it recovers much um, in the next coming weeks as the lockdown is eased, or whether it continues to be quite depressed for the remainder of this year. Yeah. It's, um, it's concerning that increasingly in terms of the comparators, initially the comparisons were often to the financial crisis, and now increasingly the comparisons are to the Great Depression. <laughs> yeah. And I think that has to do with kind of working through all of the different mechanisms and um, how to understand the full impact, not only of the crisis itself in the first round, but also the lockdown and you know, how long these lockdowns will have to last to really make a difference. And if not lockdown, you know, some form of restriction on, on economic activity and even social activity, because that affects the restaurants and the hospitality sector um, and some of the services as well. That kind of leads into the point of what might the sort of what might the um, immediate response be and then what might be the exit strategy for the lockdown you know, we emerged today from level five to level four. And so what does that mean? Does it mean a significant uptick in economic activities? Are they doing enough? And from what I've read internationally, there really isn't any blueprint at the moment. Um, as you say, it's a giant social experiment, but there do seem to be a couple of common themes on how to manage the exit. The one is to do it in a sort of considered way. It obviously doesn't make sense to run the risk of just completely opening the economy and undoing all the good that's been done in the last few weeks and the cost to the economy. <laughs> but on the other hand, I think maybe we're being a bit cautious because yes, we have much higher initial level of, of uh, poverty and equality and we'd risk a tremendous amount of human suffering if we don't let people return to school and to, and to work. So, yeah, I mean, from the international experience, what have you sort of seen the approaches that countries have, have taken? Are there any interesting case studies? And is there anything we can apply to South Africa, given it's so different from most of the economy? Yeah, okay, I think you're right. That's the difficult thing, is finding a, a case study that's, you know, the right fit. And it's not obvious that there are. The ones that are celebrated tend to be New Zealand, um, South Korea, Denmark, Czech Republic. But those are very particular countries with very well-run health systems. And 
many of those are quite small economies as well. And given the coordination problem that a pandemic represents, you can't learn from a small economy. And I think our challenges are very unique. So it's difficult to, if anything, I think it's been difficult to be one of the first developing countries, you know, that had to jump in and address COVID because it would have been great if we could learn from other developing countries' success stories. But I think, like you say, we need to err on the side of of caution given the risk profile of the country. And I think we've done well in that. I I don't think anybody would fault our government for erring on the side of caution. I think that's the right thing to do, given the massive uncertainty that we faced. I mean, I think what there is definitely is uh, examples of how not to do it. And <laughs> yeah. um, I think I'm, one, one is very, very worried, especially about, you know, this, this exit and the easing, because I think that's exactly where issues around social habits of, you know, we different from the Danes and the South Koreans and how we socialize, but also civil civil obedience. We needed the army to police lockdown. Now that we are in closed work environments where it cannot be policed, you know, where social distancing needs to uh, be the responsibility of individuals, the question is how well will we fare, you know? If it's up to the individual and to what extent that individual really makes a strong commitment to social distancing. I think the approach that has been taken to have a very kind of piecemeal opening, although it's frustrating, is probably the correct good because I want to mention under sort of a very slight easing to see uh, how we move forward. I mean, even the lack of country cases for us to to follow. Yeah, I think for me, the devil is perhaps in the detail, but I also understand it's experimental. So I'm not really in favor of, you know, government prescribing which sectors SIC code by SIC code should be opened at each phase. I sort of would prefer an approach if they laid out very strict physical distancing parameters and allowed anyone who was able to operate safely under those conditions to go back to work. But they'd have to be quite context specific. You need different guidelines for informal trading office environments in, you know, CBDs and with transport nodes and any area that was high risk. But that would be for me a preferred strategy. But I also understand, you know, the complexity around designing something like that. But hopefully in the coming weeks they can continue to modify the approach. Because on the other hand, I'm very concerned that the, the, the Treasury has announced a, a number of support measures, and I, I was ex- exceptionally relieved, especially about the direct grants to vulnerable households. Um, yeah, ex- informal workers and, and the top of, of the child grant. That was long overdue. <laughs> that was. I was getting, I think we were all as economists getting increasingly desperate. And, and in fact, they have not been dispersed yet. You know, I stand to be corrected, but I think those still have to. Especially it's also what I understand. I understand actually that they might not arrive before the end of May. And for me, thinking through it, you know, informal workers, uh, people who are self-employed, with four, day, four days of notice, uh, they were told that they will not be receiving money for three weeks. And that was then extended by two weeks. And for most of them, they will still not be receiving money if they're not part of the sectors that have been open, opening up, you know, it's with almost no warning. So while one understands what is behind, what motivated this, one is also very, very aware of the hardship and suffering of these families who, 
may often not have a lot of savings. And essentially, if these grants only arrive end of May, that would have been 10 weeks without, you know, anything to compensate for the loss of income. No livelihood. And, and I think in that bottom half of the earnings um, distribution, you know, people are not flexible. They can't find other ways to earn a living online or part-time. Um, you know, literally it means they're without a livelihood and they often don't have any social safety nets. So I think from that perspective, I don't think we should, as well, if the government should be overly cautious. I also understand having just been downgraded with very little fiscal space that they didn't have the ability that many advanced nations have to, to stimulate the economy through fiscal measures. I see they've tried to guarantee, provide guarantee, government guarantees for small business loans, medium to small business. In fact, any business under 300 million rand turnover. So I think that will be very helpful and at least making sure that there's some jobs in six months time for people to return to, especially in the very vulnerable sectors, which employ a lot of people. Tourism in South Africa, they're very big employers. Tourism, hospitality, you know, retail of durable goods and non-durables, they all see they're more on the labor intensive side of the economy. So yeah, I'm concerned, yeah, from that perspective that we as a government can't afford to be overly cautious and should try and find ways to safely open up the economy and obviously closely monitor the situation, not be too, as I say, prescriptive. There are things that, yeah, people who need to make a livelihood will innovate. I think businesses, small business will innovate, find a way to operate within new norms if they're given the opportunity to do so. But if there's sort of just a ban on your SIC code and you can't go from physical retail to online or, or make another plan, then I think it's, unless it's causing unnecessary harm potentially. But yeah, I mean, as I say, not much time to design rather complex schemes. So I'm also understanding of the approach that, that has been taken. I think the regulatory capacity is also an issue and sort of the lack of regulatory compliance in South Africa. We, I mean, I hope that that is what has motivated a lot of the more extreme and stricter measures that we've seen. But I think it's tough. It's definitely tough. And these are impossible choices. They're very, very difficult choices to make. I think one of the frustrations that I've had also is that the people advising on health and the economy and social policy are often different people. And that has led to unnecessary debates and fault lines, whereas we should all have the same aim, and that is sort of how to best recover from this um, onslaught of this pandemic. And especially in the press, you often see this kind of polarization of the debate between the economy and public health, whereas I think, you know, for an ordinary person, that divide is not there. (laughs) The divide is there because of how expertise and departments operate. But I think in this case, it is kind of a suboptimal way to, to make decisions. And I'm worried about that going forward, that it is too much of a, a tug of war instead of you know, getting on the same page and having models that are inclusive of both of those interests instead of running a model to optimize uh, you know, infections and then separately one that looks at jobs and the economy. No, exactly. And yeah, I mean, I was thinking that earlier, I would not have no idea as an economist of the kinds of social parameters, social distancing parameters you might need to put in place in different work environments, for example, to keep them to limit risk. But it would be very interesting for economists to work with the epidemiologists and public health specialists to try and jointly understand 
our best to, you know, minimize the risk to the economy and minimize the, the risk of transmission. Yeah. So, I mean, well, I hope that that would be possible given the fact that people are reaching out and I think that people, there is kind of a spirit of we need to get this right and an understanding of the severity that is kind of overruling egos, you know, in research often egos are a big issue in policy as well. <laughs> but I think there's now a sense of urgency and also a realization that this is not the time for your ego. We need to work together to make organize a response. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think the one area we haven't spoken that much about are the education plans. There's been some mm. confusion about when South African children will be allowed to return to, to school. And yeah, it's been a, a very interesting area internationally because once again, countries have, have followed polar opposite approaches in some cases. Ha, have you, yeah, I mean, what are your thoughts on, on the debate about whether school should be allowed to return early on and the easing of a lockdown? Well, initially, my perspective was that that would probably be one of the last ways in which we will ease out of the lockdown because the common conception is that children, is a, uh, children are a very important vector for the transmission of disease in general. And there were initially a lot of cases, mostly anecdotal, about transmission through children, asymptomatic transmission through children as well in China and South Korea. But what was interesting, I've been reading a lot about this over the past week, and although all of the evidence is early and it's often not as strong and not as sort of large sample as one would want it to be, they all seem to surprisingly point in the same direction. And that is that there is actually very little evidence of children being a large contributor to the spread of the disease. And aligned with that, that it therefore, given the incredible cost of keeping the schools closed, especially in a country like ours with huge inequalities, you know, cost to caretakers, uh, caregivers who can't work because their ch young children are at home, pass to children who are losing, uh, you know, parts of their education and social inequities also added to that, the, the meal program. It does seem to be the rational thing to consider opening up the schools. And what's also interesting is that I'm not sure on what basis, but we've opted for uh, letting the older children uh, come back to school first. And the evidence seems to suggest not, not for reasons of educational impact, that it makes far more sense for the younger children to return to school first. Educational impact and then also um, ability to learn independently and the caretaking burden. I think, yeah, I, think I was going to say, I mean, having young children myself, a two-year-old and a six-year-old, without um, a living domestic worker, which is what fortunately I've had, you know, during the past weeks, which has allowed me to continue with my job, it would be very difficult to occupy like, and continue to work with a two-year-old, to return to work with a two-year-old and, and a grade one at home. And so, yeah, I just find, yeah, that is, I think in Scandinavian countries like Denmark and Norway and Sweden, they've either never closed the primary schools or they have already early on allowed primary school children to return to work, recognizing that the parents, I mean, to school, recognizing the parents need to return to work to restart the economy. Yeah, so I think, I mean, unless there is clear evidence to, to kind of, uh, well, it doesn't seem there is anymore, to support the fact that children are a vector um, and, you know, could easily transmit the, the disease to grandparents at home, etc. I think um, it just makes a lot of sense to, 
to consider accelerating, I think, the return to school and continuing to monitor the international evidence. And I think that's one of the most difficult things, right? I mean, we, one would want better evidence, but we don't have better evidence. And you no, know, flying don't. blind, how do you do it? And I think uh, one thing that I do hope is that as better evidence emerge, our country will adjust to that and not feel obliged to say in the course that it's chosen to save face. And I think that's, that's the kind of flexibility that you need to have in this environment where new evidence is emerging daily. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, some more affluent countries like Korea have gone for a more conservative approach where they've allowed online learning. But that's in a country where most people have internet access. So it's, you know, it's a feasible strategy, whereas in South Africa, that would never cut muster. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's a very important aspect of the crisis, having the whole country's children at home while hoping somehow their parents can return to work. Yeah, and you've seen in other countries that there's been some measures taken to provide childcare, um, but we haven't seen that over here. So it's not clear that, again, there's not, it's not clear that there's a plan on the table for what needs to happen to employees who can't return to work on Monday, but they can't because their children are at home. And I think that's something that hopefully will be addressed as um, employers realize that this is a massive problem and we need to find a solution. And I think our professor um, Karim has noted that we've had a, a really good track record so far South Africa in, in controlling the spread of this coronavirus, but he has said it is an that we will, once we return to normal, to semblance of normal economic activity, that we will start to see increasing rates of community um, transmission. And we are very unlikely to escape the trends that most other countries have, have experienced. What, I mean, internationally, they don't seem, as I say, to be a blueprint on how to handle the phasing out of a lockdown, but um, they do seem to be a couple of accepted strategies, one of them being um, to try and do as much testing and contact, continuing to do screening, testing, contact tracing, and then isolating of people who have the infection to try and limit the spread. What else can, can South Africa do really to, to try and ensure that we don't have to return to an extended lockdown or multiple lockdowns, I suppose? I think the important challenge will really be to create information systems that are super responsive and real time so that they can uh, identify hotspots as soon as they emerge. And the test for antibodies that you mentioned would also be really important because there's a big debate about what share of cases would be asymptomatic. So I think that is really, and I think in particular for South Africa, the challenge will be making our decentralized local uh, health service work well. At the moment, the community health workers, 28,000 of them, are really the foot soldiers. And we've always been um, struggling to link those community health workers back into the main system. If we do that well, and I think it's been, been very encouraging to see mobile um, phone companies coming on board, because that's exactly the type of leapfrogging that we need at the moment to make this work. That seems to have been a key to um, South Korea's success is really using information and technology and the experience from MERS 
to do very, very effective contact tracing, you know, down to the, the bus stop, the person got off at or using cell phone records, which has been proposed here as well to see who else the, the infected person came into contact with on public transport, which buses, which trains. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and so far, um, they do seem to have managed to keep um, the spread of the infection under control. I mean, there's also hope that at some point a vaccine will be developed, but it, it seems like the epidemic might have run its course, the pandemic, before, before the vaccine is actually, you know. Yeah. I think what would be more promising is probably some of the trials on treatment, um, because there are some human trials on treatment. I mean, one, one hopes that that might allow us to have a bit of a better grip at, at managing the disease, although it's only the last you know, when somebody's hospitalized often that these treatments would kick in. And then because the, the virus disproportionately affects people who are over the age of, well, I don't know if it's 60 or 65, but generally older, older people, some countries have been advocating for a sort of stratified risk-based strategy where you try and, you know, keep... She's the elderly. Yeah, and shield the elderly, ask them to remain voluntarily in, in lockdown for much longer periods since a lot of them wouldn't be economically active. And that's where you can let many people return to work while trying to limit the really serious cases. Uh, I don't know how much of a feasible strategy that would really be in the South African context, where I wouldn't think that most of the elderly live in nursing homes. So, and there are also issues around multi-generational households um, that live in very small spaces where it might just simply not be practical to try and practice uh, shielding, especially given that some of the transmission occurs while somebody is asymptomatic. So you would need to always shield, almost sort of preventative shielding. Yeah. And that also, I think it's a big burden. Yeah. A big burden and also, yeah, I mean, quite a, quite a burden on an elderly population, mental health-wise, you know, all the, all the same reasons that people have been struggling um, in the short initial lockdown period. So, yeah, I guess, I guess it may, I mean, I, ideally it does sound logical, but in, practically I'm not sure how well that would work. And the other problem in South Africa is the underlying health conditions. So it's not just people you know, over the age of 60 that may be at risk here, but also people infected with TB, HIV, people who have hypertension and diabetes. So, you know, it would be difficult to justify just de-risking only the elderly on that basis. It may need to be, I guess, in that case, more, more widespread, our social distancing, less um, selective. Um, yeah, I think for me that was the main topics that have been of interest. Mm -hmm. I think there was mentioned one other interesting glimmer of hope, I guess, was I've heard that there is, but I don't know what the progress has been, a development potentially of a rapid at-home test, interestingly, in Senegal. And apparently they have expertise from other infectious diseases like yellow fever in their laboratories, and they've been working with the UK company to try and launch a $1 at-home rapid test for COVID, which would obviously be fantastic, but I'm not part of the scientific community, so I wouldn't know how likely it is it would arrive. Time to, to address the current uh, crisis, but that does I, sound... I, I thought as a... The, I think there is one more thing that we do need to discuss perhaps or just mention and highlight. And I think that is the potential calamity of what will happen if 
fears of COVID causes individuals to decrease their health-seeking behavior, specifically vaccinations. I know that Karim has warned, around, uh, has warned people about that, but in uh, the DRC, they saw that initially, uh, you know, through normally Ebola deaths were, were about 3,500, but then because of missing uh, measles vaccination, there were 6,000 children uh, that died because of that. And I think there are lots of worries around issues Avoid with that. access to reproductive health, missing chronic medication, HIV patients not going to the clinic because they're worried that they're a high-risk group. So, you know, that's almost the other side of the shielding, that uh, if these groups now are overly concerned about their risk and start to stay at home, Mm. even missing their medical appointments, then um, that might actually have as big an effect, if not bigger, in terms of mortality than the disease itself. And I think that's a real concern for me. That is a very important part of the counterfactual. And I don't know what the situation is, but I don't think a lot of clinics have the luxury of completely separating COVID-related treatment from, you know, in terms of physically, location-wise, from every, all the other health conditions. But that would obviously help to alleviate some of the fears where it's possible to have COVID-specific stations, even if they're temporary, you know, some distance from the other hospital or clinic activity. But yeah, I mean, certainly for myself, I would be concerned to, to visit a, public, a, a private or public health facility at the moment. Karima yeah. said as much, he's spoken about them as hotspots. I think the, the concern <laughs> is warranted. Um, but the, yeah. I think one needs to, like you say, very carefully think through you know, how you manage that because the implications of that, if people are avoiding health centers and postponing picking up crucial chronic meds, then we might have a public health problem that is as large as COVID. Yeah, and I think there needs to be a very clear communication with the clinic's regular patients. You know, if there is a situation where there is COVID positive staff or there's an outbreak, then they need to communicate where they can seek alternative treatment for the moment or provide some assurance that it's being dealt with in a very uh, deliberate and systematic way to reassure people that it's safe to return. But yeah, I can quite see how that might become a major issue. And then some of the, the strange side effects of uh, Medicaid or treatment options that haven't been proven yet, you know, like the antimalarial medication and the BCG vaccine, Apparently, the knock-on effect of that, I've heard from pharmacists, has been already some shortages of, of you know, BCG vaccines, which are vital for, for babies uh, to receive in, in a country with such a high TB incidence. So, yeah, there are many um, unintended consequences of, yeah, of the focus, I guess, on the global pandemic that are not, not necessarily appreciated by all the decision makers. I think that is part of what flying blind means at the moment is that there are these, you know, unintended consequences that are surfacing week by week. We are slowly learning and understanding the full extent of the impact of this, you know, both kind of the drastic impact of the pandemic, but also the, the drastic, as drastic impact of the lockdown on the lives we lead and our shared future. Yeah, I mean, there has been suggestions by the IMF that this will be, you know, a V-shaped recovery, that the, mm. the pandemic will run its course maybe through the remainder of this year and then, you know, off a much lower base economy would grow or recover quite rapidly. But there is obviously concern that 
that's too optimistic and that the impact of several firm closures, major job losses, um, health consequences are much more lasting than aggregate macro forecasts would, would suggest um, because really these circumstances are quite unprecedented. It's very difficult. I mean, I expect forecasters to get it wrong. Forecasting works well when it's incremental change of a structure that is similar. And this is not that. This is a structural break with what we've with learned. For constant recalibration. Yeah, agreed. No, it is going to be a very challenging year or two ahead, I think. And yeah, I think we'll see various impacts for, for many years to come. I think as people, you know, what... Jacinda O'Hearn has been saying, I think, was quite powerful for me that, you know, we need to be both strong and kind. And I think that is hopefully what will help carry us through this. A lot of strength because I think there will be a lot of hardship ahead. But I mean, we've all seen amazing um, acts of compassion and kindness and, like you say, innovation as well. I think it's exposed a lot of the, it's brought to light a lot of the socioeconomic issues we knew were there, um, inequalities in public health, inequalities in access to education, to resources, to internet. And I hope by, yeah, by shedding light on some of these issues, we may see also bigger emphasis on structural reform post the zenith of the crisis. And yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged by the number of countries that are trying direct social transfers and I hope we can use this as a pilot to test the effectiveness because I've always been a great believer in, in more direct transfers where you can avoid rent-seeking and can reach people in a more equal fashion. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess in, in that way, there may be some silver linings, hopefully. Yeah, some learning. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, the, the upside of, of public health is in a way a contagious disease like this one is a perfect illustration of the way that there's an invisible string that binds us all together, you know, of social solidarity and the fact that the only way that we can beat this is by standing together. And um, one, one does hope, like you said, that there's a silver lining, that there might be some sort of stronger social fabric emerging from being thrown together in this fight against COVID. Yeah, I would, I would hope that that is the trend and that, um, yeah, we don't see countries, you know, retreating into protectionist mentality. Um, but I think fortunately, by and large, I think there has been a lot of cooperation um, and that should obviously be, or collaboration be encouraged. Um, but yeah, it's been a very fascinating discussion. <laughs> I'm glad I got the chance to, yeah. Uh, flesh out some of these burning issues with you and it's yeah been very nice to get your public health perspectives given your yeah your knowledge of the south african health context so thank you very much thanks okay yeah it's been great thank you